Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. While fairly young on the world scene, South Africa has a long history with wine. Vitis vinifera was first planted in South Africa by the Dutchman John van Riebeek in 1655. Then in 1659, he actually produced the first bottle of wine. Today, exports are reaching upwards of 388 million liters, and more than 2,600 farmers cultivate some 90,000 hectares of land under vines. One cannot talk about visiting South African wine regions without talking about the actual grapes themselves. While there isn't enough time in this season to speak on each grape grown in South Africa, I did want to highlight a couple from some tastings I participated in during my time there. You'll hear from an American that had a chance meeting on a train in France that led her to making wine in South Africa. And then also the manager of the Chenin Blanc Association. Here's today's episode. I'm Andrea Molyneux, and I am the winemaker, viticulturalist, and co-owner of Molyneux and Liu Family Wines. Listening to you speak, and then I also know you, you're not South African, correct? I know it, it sometimes it's it's disappointing to people hearing that I'm a winemaker in the Swartland um, and in Franschuk, and then I have this California accent. So I, I grew up in California. I studied uh, winemaking in university, but un- until I was 17, I didn't realize that you could study winemaking in university. It was a um, uh, I actually wanted to be an astronaut until I was 17, and everyone in my family was either a scientist or an artist and wine just fell right into that. And it was something I was always very interested in growing up, but I had never really thought about how someone became a winemaker. I thought winemakers were just born from other winemakers and I never thought about the origin story of winemakers. So why South Africa though, with all the other places, you being from California, California has a very rich, well, maybe not rich wine history, but a very rich wine culture. Why South Africa? So I am a first generation winemaker in my family. I didn't come from wine, a winemaking background. So when I studied winemaking, immediately you want to travel the world and get experience of wines from around the world. I worked in Napa for a few years, but if you don't go to other countries to see different scenarios, work with different varieties, you know, I, I feel that by doing that and being able to do two a year, it's, it's a very enriching experience, but it makes you a better winemaker as well. And my first harvest abroad after working in the Napa Valley for a few years was in South Africa. And it was supposed to be a six month internship. 
Um, but uh, it's been almost 19 years now. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, obviously there was, you know, wasn't forced to stay by any, for any reason, but, but it, I just fell in love with the wines and the food and the, the culture and the people. And I ended up having another internship for the second six months of 2004. And it happened to be in Chateauneuf-de-Pop, France. And um, <laughs> while I was there, I was on a train to Champagne one weekend and to visit a friend. And it turned out that um, the person who became my husband was on the same train and we were visiting the same mutual friend. So it was uh, all very serendipitous. Um, he happened to be from South Africa and, you know, because I had already fallen in love with the country, which is for me, a very important part of the story, you know, fall in love with the place. Um, when we fell in love, it was easy to come back to South Africa together. In 2007, we decided to get married and start our own winery. He's also a first generation in the wine business. And we could have done that anywhere um, because we didn't come from a winemaking family. We didn't inherit land or building or, or business or responsibilities in that context. So we actually did investigate uh, if we're going to start a project, you know, where are the wines that we love? And, you know, obviously the South of France was, was, you know, really that, that core and that origin of where we met and the wines that we fell in love with, um, you know, California where my family's from, you know, and, and we're talking about a similar climate now and South Africa. And when we fell in love, it, it was about, um, we were tasting a lot of Syrahs together, going up the Rhone Valley. And the place that made the most sense in terms of the land, what could be offered uh, in terms of viticulture, the types of varieties that would grow there. You know, we knew we had to be in a, in a Mediterranean climate and the opportunities, the soil, the people and everything, everything came together in the Swartland in South Africa. I love that. I mean, wine and then love and then love and wine together. <laughs> it like works well together. Yes, you were able to put that together. Then you were able to put together your love of science and your love of art. And you put that together for winemaking. So it's it's great to hear how things can come together when you are doing the thing that you love. You mentioned first generation winemaker for you and also your husband. What does that mean to you being a first generation winemaker? So, you know, for us, it's quite exciting because we're of a generation where you can choose your career path, um, you know, for for centuries, you just did what your parents did. Or if you did your own thing, whatever you um, started your path on, it was, it was quite strange to change career paths. So Chris, for example, um, actually studied accountancy, which has been very important for the business before he studied uh, viticulture and enology. I went straight into enology, but you know, I originally had that like desire to be an astronaut and, and study astrophysics. So that for me is, is an important part about how we choose our careers today is that we really can choose what we want to do. And in terms of being a first generation winemaker, what that meant though was, you know, there are the challenges of you have to start from scratch. We didn't inherit, you know, a vineyard. We didn't inherit a building. So we started our winery in a garage and um, we started with already established vineyards, which was very important that when here in the Swartland where we're based, there were already amazing established vineyards. We didn't have to start a vineyard from scratch because that can add on an immense amount of expense and time onto a business plan if you're starting from scratch. And the most important thing about 
being a first generation winemaker is that you can write your own story. So we didn't have shoes to fill. You know, we didn't have to be in someone else's shadow. We could decide this is what we want to do. This is where we're going to do it. This is how we're going to do it. But then conversely, the hard part about that is you've got no track record. You have to write that story and people need to buy into it. So making excellent wine is number one, but there's a lot of good wines out there. And, you know, if there's not a story behind it, um, it gets you nowhere. So it was really important for us, for the world to understand, um, and even for South Africa to understand, because the Swartland was a very unknown place when we started, um, of why is the Swartland special? Why, what's our <laughs> unique sales positioning? What, what's our... What is what we're doing different from what a guy in Stellenbosch or what a guy in France is doing? You know, and it, it's not like we had to make up that story. That was, it was part of who we were, but it was about how did we communicate that story? And how have you communicated that story? Like, what is something that you wish people knew about uh, Swartland specifically and then also about South African wines? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, with the Swartland, as I mentioned, like 15 years ago, people didn't know about the Swartland at all. Even within South Africa, they didn't. And um, I think that what's been amazing about the Swartland is even though wine grapes have been in the country since the you know 1650s or so, the Swartland was a little bit different in that because it was unknown, the farmers had very, very little money to work with. It was actually mostly a wheat growing area. Um, but wheat doesn't grow very well on mountains and there's three main mountains in the area and grapes grow, grow great on mountains. So that's where the grapes came in. So oftentimes farmers would plant just some grapevines sort of at the top of their property that wasn't good for wheat, but just so that they could have something green to look at in, in the, um, in the summer months when the wheat is very, you know, brown and, and stark looking. So because they weren't looking necessarily at quality at the time, but the grapes that survived ended up being incredibly high quality because they were survivor vines. But because they weren't grape farmers, they never took vineyards out and replaced them with something that was new and trendy. So because of that, we have an immense amount of old vine vineyards that have historically done well um, in our warm, dry, uh, rustic climate. Um, so I think that's what it makes Swartland wines so exciting and it's something that maybe not a lot of people realize is sort of the history very short term in terms of high quality but if it wasn't for that background longer history we wouldn't have these amazing vineyards that we have today. Uh, amazing and you were speaking before about some of the oldest surviving vineyards in South Africa were those yours specifically or were those in the Swartland in general? We do work with South Africa's oldest surviving vineyard right now that was planted or registered in the year 1900. Um, that is not in the Swartland. That is actually in the neighboring region. And we use that for another project called Liu Passant that we make. But we do work with a massive amount of old vineyards. So old vines in South Africa are defined as being over 35 years old, but with a up to 15% uh, replanting because you want the vineyard as a whole to survive. So if you have to replant vines here and there, that's actually considered very beneficial. There are 4,000 hectares of old vines in South Africa. About half of those are Chenin Blanc, but the oldest surviving vineyard in South Africa happens to be Sinso. 
And the background story to that vineyard or to why Sunso is actually quite incredible. So um, as we know, um, phylloxera in the mid to late 1800s just decimated the world of wine viticulturally. And um, a lot of replantings had to be done. There's obviously still places in the world that are still on their own roots and, and bravo to them. But in South Africa, it was mostly replantings. And uh, the government decided to take more control over what was happening agriculturally and still has a lot of control today over um, how wines are certified. But uh, in 1900, they decided that every single vineyard needs to be um, you know, applied for, registered. And this didn't necessarily happen internationally where people knew exactly what was planted where, down to how many vines, what was the density, what's the variety. Uh, what rootstock is it on? It's all 100% recorded by the government. And although it seems maybe a bit overbearing, what it allowed us to do is have these incredible records of all these old vineyards. So you can have anecdotal stories of old vineyards, like, oh, that was planted 80 years ago by my great grandpa. But like, if it's not recorded down anywhere, which a lot of vineyards around the world are don't have an official recording you know, then it just does become a, a story. And obviously you can go into a vineyard and you can see that it's old, but in South Africa with this list of records, you could, we knew exactly where all of the old vineyards were. And that's how um, in 2013, we looked at the top of the list um, and we were like, well, because uh, the list, sorry, hadn't been released uh, to South Africa. So I'm going to take one step back. There was a project called the Old Vines Project, which I can speak more about in a minute, that was able to obtain the list. And when they released it, we went straight to the top to the oldest vineyard, 122 years old this year. And um, we were like, how, where, where is this? How do we get it? And it was, it was in, it was in pretty bad condition. It had not been farmed well for a few decades. So it took a lot of rehabilitation. Now, how does one learn how to take care of something, you know, that's three times older than them? The initiative, the Old Vines Project in South Africa, that's what they're there for. It's not just about categorizing old vineyards, uh, but it's also about educating about why they're important, not just for flavor, but for, for culture, for history, for everything. But also they educate on how to take care of old vines, how to rehabilitate them, how to plant young vines to become old vines one day. So when you're working with something incredibly old and special, you can't do an overnight fix. Um, I always say there's no instant gratification in winemaking. And if something took 122 years to grow, it's going to take a little time to rehabilitate something that maybe hasn't been treated perfectly for the last couple of decades. So it took about five years of rehabilitation before it came back into its own balance, um, you know, getting a a beautiful crop, balanced crop, happy vines to make happy wine. I think a lot of that, those aren't things that people know about South African wine. I think when it comes to South African wine, people think of it as fairly new on the scene, um, not old vines, and they don't necessarily look at it as more of a fine wine, higher end kind of thing. What would you say to people who have that idea? I mean, outside of us just hearing about the Old Vines Project, but what would you say to people who think that South African wines are more uh, good value or kind of on the lower end of the spectrum? 
I think it's a very justified thought that people had because of some of the wines that were being consumed from South Africa. So in the 1960s and 70s, there was a wine called Lieberstein, which was the number one wine brand in the world. So not just from South Africa, not just white wine. And that was all made from Chenin Blanc from South Africa. And it was, you know, a bit off dry. It wasn't necessarily quality. It was just a giant bulk wine brand. Now, the positive thing that came out of that is there was this huge cult plant Chenin Blanc in the 1960s. And that's where most of our old wine Chenin Blanc comes from today, where these vineyards that maybe were just planted for bulk wine at the beginning, but, you know, fast forward 60, 70 years, and you're making some really, really amazing wines from those surviving vineyards from there. However, there was, you know, obviously a bit of damage done for the category of, you know, Chenin Blanc, or it was actually called um, Steen at the time, which is the German word for stone, because until the 1960s, they actually thought Chenin Blanc in South Africa was a German variety. And it was only after the 1960s um, that they realized it was, it was actually Chenin Blanc that was planted everywhere. But uh, when it comes to, yeah, other wines around when South Africa ended apartheid, people took advantage of the export opportunities that were available to them to be able to actually finally export wine. And, you know, the, from there rose, um, you know, the critter labels, the, you know, with giraffes and elephants on the, on the labels, they were cheap wines. They were being, you know, they were just bulk wine being packaged cheaply and sold cheaply for people looking for a quick buck. And that did do reputational damage to South Africa. And that's why the last 15 years, you know, even though wine's been in the country since the 1600s, um, the last 15 years has been the most important time uh, for South African wine in terms of a, a quality perspective and for people to look at South Africa from other countries and be like, wow, that's really exciting. Um, you know, we have uh, the oldest viticultural soils in the world, up to 400 million years old. And, you know, that in itself means that the vines that are growing on these soils are super expressive of the land on which they're grown. The Cape Floral Kingdom of Feinbos is the most diverse floral kingdom in the world. And that means that we have these incredible small aromatic bushes. Uh, Feinbos means fine bush because the leaves tend to be small, but uh, they're not fragile. They're, they're, <laughs> they're very, very hardy bushes, but incredibly aromatic. And that lends um, you know, a general perfume to the air in which these vines grow. And, and so you do get a true sense of place between the soils, the aromatics, all the characteristics of terroir really do come out in South African wines. And the change that has happened in the last 15 years is that winemakers love celebrating that. You know, they're, they're not trying to make a copy of Bordeaux when they're making a Cabernet, they're making an honest, authentic Stellenbosch Cabernet that has those amazing characteristics. working in the vineyard, you know, that has an influence on terroir. The age of the vines are more or less the same. And so the differences between these wines for us is the soil. 
and on the granite soils, which is the line that's all the way on the left. So you can see that our granite soils are very decomposed granite. So we, we get big boulders on the granitic mountain, which is called the Partiberg. We point out the, the granitic Partiberg. And if you take this stone and drop it on the ground, it's not like a granite countertop. This will shatter and make sand over time. So this means that the roots can get incredibly deep into these sandy soils. And when you have deep roots, vines always want to replicate above the ground what's happening below the ground. So if you have deep roots, you end up with a really big canopy or the leaf growing area of the vine. So that means that the fruiting zone is very, it's more cool and more shaded inside than more exposed vineyards. And when you're standing in the shade and it's cooler, you can retain more natural acidity. So our vineyards grown on granite soils are always the most perfumed, they always have the highest natural acidity, um, and the most length. Because I didn't come from a winemaking background, and I kind of still assumed that everyone that I was studying with had winemaking parents, but that wasn't the case. Maybe half of them did, but a lot of people were like me and just starting from scratch. But I just definitely felt that I needed that extra leg up to be able to get into the industry and not just be like always an outsider. And uh, so, yeah, I worked for um, an amazing uh, person who's a winemaker now. Her name is Carol Meredith, um, and she started a winery called uh, Lagier Meredith in, in Napa, but like very humble, not a big fancy Napa winery. Um, but she is one of the world's most esteemed grapevine geneticists. So nice. And she's actually the person who discovered that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon was the child of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, and that happened while I was working in her lab. Nice. So that was like <laughs> super cool. This is also why mentorship is really important to me, is I grew up with very strong women in my family, but like stubborn and strong, like matriarch strong. Mm -hmm. But when it came to being like industry professionals, the fact that I ended up in her lab, and I didn't know who she was, or probably not even that it was a she, because the I probably would have applied under you know Professor Meredith. You know, it was not necessarily um, you know Mister or Mrs. And the fact that my path like led me in that direction really taught me about you know it wasn't about being a feminist per se. It was about having no boundaries on what someone can achieve regardless of their gender. And when I came to South Africa and I was, when I first started with the Cape Winemakers Guild and people read about like the fact that I was the new member and this and that and I'd be pouring my wine at a show and these young females were coming up to me and saying like, oh my goodness, you're my, you're my role model. And I'm like, what? Like, no, but there's no way I can be your role model because my role models are like, you know, up here now. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that how fortunate I was to have had that from an early part in my career. And it made me realize that being a role model is a very important position to be proud of and to take seriously. So I just wanted to show you the two core wines before we like broke okay. it down. So the wine on your right is um, our Malinu Syrah. So this was the other wine that we started with from the beginning. So I mentioned you know, Old Vine Shannon being the core of what we were going for white, and then the amazing Syrahs of the Swartland as well. The Swartland is a warm, dry, breezy place, as I mentioned, so very conducive for the natural winemaking, the natural viticulture we do, as well as working with the Rhone varieties. 
So we've got the sunshine to ripen the grapes, but we have these amazing cool breeze evenings that help grapes to relax and recover. So even though we're super hot during the day, people forget that at night in the Swartland, like, don't forget to bring a jacket if you're going to a barbecue because it cools down quite a bit. So what are we looking for in Syrah from the Swartland? It's inherently very fragrant um, and tannins that are fine, very apparent tannins, but not chunky tannins. So in the Swartland, you get what we refer to as like baking spices, you know, cardamom, cinnamon, clove, like those very aromatic spices. You're not going to, well, I'm not going to say what you're not going to find, but we're not a cool climate. Even though we have cool evenings, we're not a cool climate. So when people talk about uh, white pepper in certain Syrahs, for me, that's not a characteristic that I personally pick up because uh, that tends to come from like very cool sites. So Syrah, more Elgin side. That would be a much more cool climate. Whereas, like, you need to taste the sunshine in this, but we don't want it to be jammy or blousy. We want it to be still balanced and elegant. So uh, for the Syrahs, I like working with 100% um, whole cluster, meaning the, keeping the stems intact, but crushing the cl clusters because I don't want to do any carbonic. But this, is, uh, this Syrah is just a good representation of, of, of what we break down and that you'll taste specifically later. So now, you know, fast forward to present day, what is uh, like wine export import like in South Africa? Are there a lot more wines being exported or do you kind of keep all the good stuff still for yourselves? I think, to be honest, most of the best wines have very strong export markets. The reason is even within South Africa, the general population had a uh, perception that South African wines shouldn't be costly. And, you know, wines should be available for anyone who wants to drink them, but it became almost like, oh no, I can't pay more than a hundred rand for a wine. That's what I spend on European wines. Or, you know, so people felt that, that uh, more pricey wines, and I'm not even talking crazy expensive, but just that more pricey wines were reserved for wines from other countries. So people were drinking more expensive wines from other countries than they were of South African wines in South Africa. And that was just, you know, part of the idea of, of always just assuming that, that a wine from another country, regardless of the quality level, had to be better because it was foreign. But in the last, you know, few years, people now understand in South Africa, you know, the cost of farming naturally. I mean, so, so we, for example, um, farm as in harmony with nature as possible, but that also means that our, our yields are very low. We really focus on on having the farm be a, a closed unit of agriculture. So we raise our own cows and that makes the compost. We um, harvest our own wheat to make mulch. And then also there's a very, very important aspect of social sustainability in South Africa. And all of these little aspects mean that wine needs to have a value for the consumer that's beyond just like, what can I get on sale? It's like, when I drink a bottle of this wine, it means that they stand for all these things, you know, natural farming, social sustainability, 
um, farming for the future, working with old vines, all of that has a cost on it. And the general consumer in South Africa understands that more and more and more now. But to get back to your question about exporting, is it's something that I think that um, export markets understood before our own domestic market. So a lot of people do export the high-end wines and, and more and more are being sold in South Africa. The biggest export markets for South Africa have traditionally been the UK and um, the Netherlands. The US is really climbing. Um, the Scandinavian countries are very interested in South African wine, specifically Sweden. In France, there's more and more South African wine that you see, and it's not that anyone is trying to uh, reinvent, you know, uh, cultural wine consumption in Burgundy or anything. But when you're in Paris and it's a, you know, a cosmopolitan chef and they're really experimenting with ingredients and techniques, you know, sometimes the wine that ticks exactly the boxes they're looking for from a flavor profile or, or texturally sometimes does come from another place. You know, I think it's amazing that the opportunities are more and more available. Sometimes I just ramble on uh, about Shin and Tanisha. So. But that's a good thing. Shin is such an amazing thing. If you have to ramble about something, Shin and Blanc is kind of a cool thing to ramble on about. We have uh, Ina Smith with us today. And she is the, um, what would you say your title is over the association? I've got many titles, but let's um, put it as manager of the Chenin Blanc Association. Of manager of the Chenin Blanc Association of South Africa. And uh, we're going to talk today about one of my favorite grapes, Chenin Blancs. Tanisha, oh, thank you so much um, for inviting me. Um, it was great meeting you recently in Stellenbosch. And um, I would love to chat more about um, Chenin Blanc, obviously, because the home of, of Chenin Blanc, the original home, um, was the Luar Valley, or is the Luar Valley. Mm -hmm. So our um, French listeners, those who are French or those who live in France, are probably very familiar with Chenin Blanc from the regions of like Vouvray, Sauvignon, Janier, and things like that. But... Chenin Blanc also grows amazingly well as a, a white wine in South Africa. What is the history of Chenin Blanc and kind of how did it get to South Africa? It's a long and very interesting um, story. And in a way, the um, story of South African wine is also the story of um, Chenin. And just to sort of go back to the Loire, um, uh, the wine region, the original, the first um, mention of Chenin in the Loire Valley was in the ninth, ninth century. And uh, we believe that the first cuttings came to South Africa in um, 1656 um, when Commander um, Jan van Riebeek was stationed um, in Cape Town. He was sent actually here to set up vegetable gardens, etc., but for some reason, he was very interested in um, wine and he asked for some cuttings. Um, but the Netherlands of obviously isn't a wine region. And they turned to the Loire Valley uh, with whom they had a trade agreement at that stage. 
The governance of the first cuttings is not mentioned in our research, but um, there were ships um, coming from the Loire Valley, northern France. Um, in Afrikaans, it's mentioned in the research as from Noord-Frankrijk, and that is northern France. So we believe the first cuttings um, came to South Africa, um, and we had the names of the ships, um, Leeuwen, Parel, and Dordrecht. And we believe the first wine made in South Africa on the 2nd of February, 1659, must have had some Schenen, but obviously it, at that stage it was called Steen in South Africa. And um, only in the 1960s, it was um, uh, discovered that Steen in South Africa was really Schenen from the Loire Valley. Professor Orfer here at the Stellenbosch University saw a grapevine picture in the Galley uh, number three of 1962, I think. And um, he saw that this um, vine leaf looks, mentioned Chenin, looks very much like Stian. So he um, imported some cuttings, and uh, after a year or two, uh, they discovered that Stian is actually um, Chenin Blanc. So from the early, we had 1659. Um, up to the 60s, we called it Stian, but for sure we had Shenan uh, from very early stages here in South Africa. Now, what is it about the, um, the land or the soil, the climate and all of that that makes South Africa a great place to produce and grow Shenan? Because um, Stian or Shenan was one of the first beard grape varieties um, here in South Africa, it was planted widely, um, Tanisha, everywhere. Um, in the early 80s, 30% um, of all vineyards in South Africa were Chenin Blanc. That was uprooted with time. And at this stage, it's about 17, 18% of, of the total vineyards in South Africa, by far the most planted beard variety in, in South Africa. And it comes in all styles. It can be made in um, several styles, the same as in the Loire, from early picking, um, sparkling wines made in the Champagne Vietnam style, um, dry chenins, um, off dry chenins, um, late harvested and dessert styles of chenin. And in South Africa, because we had so many um, um, chenin plantings, for decades, it was used as a base for brandy in South Africa or other blended Vietnam wines. But I think the last two decades, obviously, um, uh, in my opinion, since the Chenin Blanc Association was formed in 2000, we really worked to upgrade the quality of, of Chenin Blanc in South Africa. When you say upgrade the quality, are there some kinds of um, like awards or certifications or things like that? What exactly do you mean? Yes, um, the quality, I mean, I also mean the vinification methods, um, Tanisha. Um, about 20, year, 20 years ago, everything was over put into 100% new barrels. Shannon doesn't need that. Um, the fruit needs to shine. And in the Loire also, um, I'm going to refer back to the Loire bit often, mostly 400 litre barrels are used and very little new wood. 
as I mentioned, Shenan really doesn't need um, new oak. Um, there are so many fr fr um, fresh flavors and fruit aromas we want um, to um, uh, uh, let come through and having been yet able to taste that. And then also, of course, um, I mentioned the Shenan Association and there are other competitions, Tanisha. The one I'd like to mention is um, uh, the Standard Bank Chenin Blanc um, Top 10 Challenge. Um, uh, we've had this competition since um, 2014. And I think this is a wonderful tool um, also to increase the quality of, of Chenin Blanc. Um, there are new producers coming through every year, but there are a few producers which has been part and a winner in this Top 10 Chenin Blanc since 2014 every year. So there's a golden thread, I think, um, through some of the quality that, Shenan um, quality that producers uh, work on with Shenan in South Africa. I've noticed that when you are mentioning um, the, the competition and uh, um, the Shenan Blanc Association or these other things that a lot of the dates of their establishment are fairly new. But you mentioned that in the history part, like Chenin Blanc yeah. came to the country in like 1655 or something like that. Yeah. What was going on during that time period? I mean, I know that part of it was apartheid and um, that had something to do with the um, embargo, import, export kind of thing. But is there something in addition to that that happened as far as uh, um, production sales and things like that? Or was that it? No, I think, yes, you mentioned um, um, apartheid, yeah, and um, there was a big company called um, KWV who bought up most of the Shenan and used it, as I mentioned, for brandy. But I think when things really started happening for South Africa was yeah, post-apartheid in the early 90s, 1994, with Nelson um, Mandela being um, our president, and that opened the borders for, for us. Um, so um, there's a lot of things happened in the past, but I think when progress really started was from the early 90s, um, when the um, export markets opened and um, we could take our wine um, to several, be it European countries and the USA and export wine, um, start exporting wine again. Our local sales equate to about 5.5 million bottles per year in South Africa. For example, in 2000, we exported 20 million. And as I said, in 2020, uh, 2021, nearly up to 55 million um, litres of Shenan. So that's, that's a lot of wine. Um, it is. And it's good to know that you aren't just keeping all of this good stuff to yourselves, that you are sharing it with the rest of us. Yes, yes. Um, the UK is our biggest market um, um, for Shenan um, Tunisia. And obviously, um, the US, um, the Netherlands, Germany, even um, China, etc. But at this stage, the UK is our biggest market okay. for South African Shenan. And for people that aren't that familiar with Chenin Blanc from South Africa, what is something that you wish they knew? Ageability. I mentioned earlier the versatility of, of Chenin Blanc and all the different styles of wine. 
But um, we know that Loire Chenin age so well. There are producers like Moulin Touchet in Anjou that only put their Chenin on the market after 10 years uh, in bottle. In South Africa, um, I think it's economic. Um, also, it's part of it. We have to put Chenin. We put Chenin if it's uh, harvested in um, February. Um, some of the Chenin, especially the fresh style of Chenin, is in bottle by May, June, and being sold very early. But that is the fresher styles of Chenin, which should be drunk within a year or two. And then uh, a different style is the more fruitier style. And we've got a third big style, which we call the rich um, and more, uh, mostly Viet, um, um, aged and barrel. Uh, and those are the wines, Tanisha, especially if it's from older vines. Um, we've got an association in South Africa called the OVP, the Old Vine Project, who looks after um, our older vines, especially vines older than 35 years. Um, so if it's an older vine, um, and we've got a lot of bush vine in South Africa, that is vines that are not trellised. Um, and they have a specific nature. And I think that adds to the quality and the balance of Shannon. So old vine, bush vine Shannon, natural winemaking, so natural fermentation, no added yeast. Those are wines that age beautifully. Um, we taste a lot of older vintages in South Africa. And um, just to mention, make, make a comment, we've got a lot of screw cap in South Africa, our Shannons. Um, they are, and they age beautifully. Um, so we taste a lot of Shannons. One of our um, producers, that's actually Ken Forrester, who's the chairman of the um, Shannon Blanc Association. At the tasting room, you can taste the 2021 Shannon Blanc from Old Vines. And they have got then a 2007 of the same wine also um, available for um, tasting. But the ageability of <laughs> South African Chenin Blanc, um, I think, is, some, is something that um, our consumers locally and internationally are not really aware of. They aren't. And so I'm glad you mentioned that as far as like um, a thing that people don't know, because I think even when it comes to white wine in general, um, yes. I think outside of Chardonnay from perhaps Burgundy, that people yes. don't think of aging white wine. They think it should all be drunk fairly young. So I'm glad that there are some other things that we are really starting to talk about um, that have some ageability and that can rest and we can give them a little bit of time. Absolutely. Um, I think also um, to add to that, um, Chenin Blanc has this great acidity Tanisha, and that brings the freshness uh, and obviously it also helps with the ageability of Chenin. Is there a particular, like there are many wine regions within South Africa, is there a particular wine region that Chenin grows best? There's other the terroirs in, in uh, more Savina, um, um, shale in South Africa, um, mostly we've got um, sandstone and granite outcrops. So that is the big difference between um, um, the Loire and South Africa. And obviously, there's the northern terroir climate of, of the Loire, while we will have more sort of med Mediterranean um, climate. Just that is a bit of a background. Stellenbosch, um, where you also visited, has some great shin. And, um, 
a lot Mediterranean, and we nearby to False Bay, the beaches here. I hate to say it, but there is some nice afternoon wind coming from um, the False Bay area, cooling down um, the vineyards. So Stellenbosch is a great area. And up the coast, a more warmer area is Swartland, um, Tanisha. I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to visit the Swartland um, area. A bit warmer, but there are some great uh, Shenan producers up that way too. Maybe. I went to a few places. I know, I yes. mean, definitely Stellenbosch was also in yes. Parle. And then yes. um, the other one, Himmel on Ard. Himmel on Ard, yeah. Um, that is along more along the south coast, which is a cooler Viet area. But they've also got some of Shenan. So you mentioned Paul, there's Wellington. And then another area, we call it just across the mountain, um, more inland, is the Bredekloof, um, near a town called Rosenville or Wooster. This Bredekloof area has got 14 Shenan producers. They produce mostly Shenan. So next time when you come to South Africa, we must take you over the mountain to this wonderful um, Bredekloof. It's also a warmer area in a long valley. So it's, it's a valley that's a very long ripening period. So the Shenans are a riper style and much more upfront fruit maybe than the Swartland or even the Stellenbosch region. Yeah, I was asking um, about the regions just so yeah. if someone were looking for Shenan, like how, okay, if they're looking for Shenan Blanc in France, they know, okay, Loire Valley, not yeah. um, the Rhone Valley or not yeah. Alsace. So, yes. but in South Africa, um, I don't know if the areas, I think Shenan kind of grows all yeah. over. Now, you are the head, the manager of the Shenan Blanc Association. Tell me a bit about the Shenan Blanc Association, what its goals are, and um, some of the work that you do there. We are one of the biggest um, associations, wine associations in South Africa, and we've got 150 members. Um, so, yeah, sometimes, yeah, um, one needs to look after all your children, so it's not always um, uh, very easy. But um, I think our main focus is really to promote the variety and raise the image of Shenan Blanc, not, all, not um, only in South Africa, but also yet, um, internationally. Because we've mentioned, I mean, you are clearly in South Africa and we've mentioned the Loire Valley. Where else is Shenan Blanc found on the planet? Um, Tanisha, we did a lot of research on that too, because um, in our second um, Shenan International Conference that um, we're hosting here in Stellenbosch in, in November, um, we wanted to make it a truly international um, conference. So our research um, showed us, and we'll have wines from these areas, is the Central Valley um, in uh, California. There's about 3,000 hectares of, of Chenal there. And the other area is Australia, Western Australia and Swan Valley. Actually, the first cuttings that went to Swan Valley was from um, South Africa. So we've got a very good connection um, with Swan Valley, which is just um, next to uh, Margaret River in Western Australia. They've also got about 3,000 hectares. Oh, New Zealand has got only got about 30 hectares. And the other countries is India, Israel, 
and also Chile uh, and Argentina. Um, there's pockets of Shen and Viet and, and other countries, but um, beyond beyond the Loire and 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 um, South Africa. And I just want to mention, whilst we've got about 18,000 hectares of Shena, the Loire has 10,000 hectares. So we've got nearly double the number of vineyards um, in uh, South Africa uh, than the Loire. Um, but then, it, as I mentioned, Central um, um, America and then um, also Australia, a little bit of New Zealand, but... Um, uh, India too. So we're trying to get um, Shena from all these countries um, to be shipped to um, um, South Africa for the conference. Wow, that's going to be amazing. And that's yes. something that I didn't even know. Like I knew California, Loire, and um, yes. South Africa, yeah. but Chile, Argentina. Wow. Yes. So yes, it's it's small quantities, but I think it's important to note it, um, that Viet people Viet know about it, but we're very sort of excited that we lead the, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Shenan vineyards um, in the world, um, Tanisha. We have learned so much about Shenan today, where we find it, what it tastes like, what kind of soil it grows in, uh, a bit of history, and uh, um, that you can age it. So yeah, yeah I've, I've yeah. loved this time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no reason not to drink um, Chenin Blanc um, on every cook occasion at Tunisia. And it was great meeting you, chatting to you, and um, let's hope we can do it again. Lastly, and this is just a personal question, do you have a favorite uh, South African food and wine pairing? Mm, um, there's a fish called snook, which is quite a meaty fish. It's a, it's not a traditional wine and food pairing, but it's something that I learned actually while traveling abroad. That uh, you know, you're always taught growing up that if you have fish, then you have to have white wine with it. But um, on one of my trips abroad, where they were pairing our wine, they were like, "Why would you pair white wine with fish?" Like for them culturally, it was a, it was a complete mind trip. So for me, it just, it opened my mind as to, oh my goodness, why do we do that? Um, and it made me realize how much more attention we need to pay to what works well culturally for you. You know, every country has different foods, but, and you compare any other wine from around the world with those foods, but you need to open your mind out about what it is you're pairing and just, throw, you know, rip up the textbook, throw it out. So what I love with this meaty white fish that is very traditional in South Africa is to pair something a bit more bold, a bit more tannic with it. So Syrah, for example, you know, a, a red variety that has, you know, big, but but uh, it's a, it can be a bigger wine. It has softer tannins than Cabernet Sauvignon, but very apparent tannins, but it's also beautifully fragrant. and a firm white fish with something like a, a Swartland Syrah actually is amazing. And the Swartland is on the west coast of South Africa. So although um, it goes quite far inland where it's very warm and dry, it goes all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So having a Swartland Syrah and, and an Atlantic fish is just an amazing combination. I wanted to mention it, uh, before we sort of end um, this podcast, the wonderful um, food friendliness of Chenin Blanc. 
And and I think it also depends on the style of Shannon and and the food. The more sort of fresher style of Shannon goes so well, I think, with salads, um, with aperitifs, with sushi, uh, for sure. And the more sort of riper styles, fruitier styles of Shannon, chicken, be it fish, the riper styles and especially I think goes well with certain soft um, cheeses and then yeah, desserts, the sweetest style. Oh gosh, yes, (laughs) talk about (laughs) creme brulee. Yeah, you know, um, baked apple tarts, um, etc. No, I think for every um, sort of food category, there's a style of Shannon, um, and it's wonderful. Uh, the versatility of Shannon lends to its um, sort of fruit friendliness, um, also delicious. Thank you so much to Andrea and Aina for talking us through the grapes, terroir, and a bit about themselves. Be sure to check the show notes for their social media handles and follow them everywhere. Definitely look for Andrea's Malino Wines, M-U-L-L-I-N-E-U-X. You will not be disappointed. All right, folks. One episode left in our semester abroad. Hope you are ready. Because I'm not. I'm actually a bit sad that this is coming to an end. Sort of like how I felt when I left South Africa for my visit. Well, all right. I'll put myself together to join you for the podcast next week for our last episode of Semester Abroad, South Africa. See you then. Thank you for listening to Wine School Dropout. This podcast was produced by Studio Ochinta and hosted by me, Tanisha Townsend. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Luis Lopez. Production coordination by Catalina Hoyos. Our theme was done by Gabrielle DeMasso. Music is by Makai Beats. Our art is by Tiffany DeLune. Follow us at Wine School Dropout on Instagram. If you'd like the show, tell a friend about it. And leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sit back, relax, and have a glass. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.